Hi, I'm Amy Blackthorne, and this is Blackthorne Grove. Hi, welcome to the Blackthorne Grove. My name is Amy Blackthorne. This is a podcast where witchcraft meets with good friends over tea to talk about the nature of magic and community. I started this podcast because I wanted to not just talk to my community at large, but to figure out a way to keep the infighting that happens um, from really infecting who we are and where we want to be six months from now, a year from now, ten years from now. Um, I've been doing this for a very, very long time, and I really wanted to find a way to get people to connect. So, who am I? My name's Amy Blackthorne. I've been teaching since... 1999, uh, I started in the Baltimore area. I've been practicing witchcraft for 28 years. <laughs> uh, that seems like a lot, but it really doesn't feel like it. Um, I have really connected with the people in my area, but I've gotten to meet such a larger group of people since publishing my first book, Blackthorn's Botanical Magic, and my second book, Sacred Smoke, Clear Away Negative Energies to Purify Mind, Body, and Spirit. I am getting ready to release the secret secret details of my third book, which will be out in October. Uh, so look forward to hearing a special announcement about that. I have been practicing magic for, like I said, a very a large portion of my lifetime. And it's funny because I connected with magic over plants. So I really wanted to bring forth that energy in the, the books that I was writing my work has been so plant-based and so plant-focused for so many years that uh, I've actually been described as an arcane horticulturalist, which I think is pretty fancy and I should have it put on business cards. Uh, I'll write that down for later. I incorporate my experience with British traditional witchcraft in my magical practice. Uh, I am no longer with that group. I'm, I've joined another. The lineage is very close. Uh, my certification in aromatherapy has led to an even more in-depth practice in adding essential oils and other plant forms that we're not necessarily used to working with into my individual practice. When you walk into your local witchy store, you get such a neat variety of the options. You have oils and there's candles and there's really fantastic books by an incredible variety of authors. But people tend to think of working with plants as just these mad science shelves filled with dubious plant matter that's been dried and sometimes pulverized until it's unrecognizable. But working with essential oils in that way really keeps us connected with the soul of that plant. So I have a certification in aromatherapy I'm ordained through the Order of the Golden Griffin. And six years ago, I started my very own company, um, Blackthorn Honey Blends. It's a tea company uh, that's getting ready to branch out. I, this year's my 2020 goal is to add candles uh, to spell candle line to the shop and maybe some other goodies. I've already started by adding two new teas as of last night, Persephone and Empathy. Persephone is actually my tea today. I'm actually drinking. It's a really sweet pomegranate blend. Uh, pomegranate 
is associated with Aphrodite. And I actually said Aphrodite instead of Persephone. I wonder if that means something. Persephone is the goddess of spring and the underworld, so that pomegranate, apple, hibiscus, there's like a little cinnamon on the very back of your palate. Uh, and they blend seamlessly to bring on a little touch of spring to the dark. So it's my tea for the day. You can find all of my teas. Uh, there's 62 of them at blackthornhoodooblends.com along with my magical oils. And coming soon, very, very soon, magical candles. So before I jump into my topic for the day, I wanted to talk about this really fantastic book. I think book reviews are a really important part of the podcast that I want to pursue because one of the very first questions I get as a teacher, as a practitioner, I get, what books do you recommend? I mean, so often that I put a page on my website just with a recommended reading list because there's so many people who are, who come to this community every day, um, because, you know, those of us who have hung around a lot tend to get a little jaded, I'll admit. It's, it's hard to find that spark that reminds us that everybody was new at some point. So I always try and keep that updated and I will make sure and update that a little sooner with some new books that I've been asked to endorse, that I've come upon in bookshops, and that have found their way to my hot little hands. I Reading is what makes for a good writer, but reading is really soul-cleansing. So right now I have a taste for Rachel Pollock's 78 Degrees of Wisdom, A Tarot Journey to Self-Awareness. So this is a new edition uh, that, I'm, that I'm holding in my hot little hands, but this is a classic the edition that I'm currently holding was released for the 40th birthday of this book. I am so in love and I absolutely adore that not only does do books like this that become classics get reinvented, they, they get new forwards, they, sometimes they get updated, but this, this beautiful tome, it's not just an in-depth look at the tarot. It's the major Ironman Arcana, in ways that you never would have thought you'd see them. I was really tickled last year at Pantheacon 2019. So I'm attending this really incredible workshop. Um, Madame Pimita put it on. She invited this panel. Uh, there was uh, Mary Kay Greer and Judica Illis, who is my incredible editor, and I absolutely adore everything she does. This panel talked about the scary tarot cards. The the cards that have either a fearsome reputation or they look scary or our, our tarot clients just fear them instinctively. Uh, I say our, I've been reading tarot for mm, 24 years uh, professionally since 1999. And I absolutely love the way that people connect with the idea of the tarot, each individual piece and how they respond to it. And during this workshop, during this panel, a hand goes up in the back of the room and it's Rachel Pollock. She's there promoting 70 degrees of wisdom. And every time she speaks, I feel like I'm being struck by lightning or, 
you know, put my finger in a light socket. There's, there's this really electric feeling to the way that she talks about the tarot and the things that she says. It's not only does it reinvigorate your practice, but it makes you feel like she's talking just to you. Like there's the, there's this magical secret that she's discovered about the tarot and she's sharing it with just you. I was really entranced with this feeling. I think the very first thing that I heard her say was talking about the five of pentacles and how in the Smith Rider Waite, you see the church window and the, the leper couple creeping by the in motion, but the window in the church has the five pentacles arranged, replicating the very bottom half of the Kabbalistic tree of life and how it relates to where we are now in the, the earthly realm. And I was completely blown away that I had been looking at these same cards for over 20 years and I never connected the arrangement in the card with the arrangement in your heart, in your chest. Um, I will probably never forget that feeling. At least I hope. So reading 78 Degrees to Wisdom, I, every time I turn the page, every time I look at a different suit, every time I looked at, looked at a different card, there was something that I will look at completely differently after having read this book. It's divided into major and minor arcana. So there's an introduction, there's great overviews, uh, but it talks about the archetypes in a way that helps you not only understand the journey of the fool, but how it interacts with each of, whether you're reading tarot for yourself, whether you're reading for a client, there is incredible amount of information here, whether you're ex expressing it verbally, whether you're, you're journaling, you're going and doing a daily tarot read, this book is for everyone. So when I get asked, what is your favorite card? What is your, what is your favorite book on the tarot? No matter the level of expertise of the person I'm talking with, I will always say the 78 degrees wisdom. Please run out, grab a copy. It's, it's a, it's actually a, a fairly large book. Uh, it's probably, doo -doo, it's 350 pages. So the amount of information in it is incredible. Don't try and rush through this book. This is the kind of book where you sit down with a journal and a pen while you're reading it. So you can record the bolts from the heavens that happen as you're reading this book. So... Read it, grab another copy, and share it with a friend. One of the segments I love to do is Thorn in My Side. Because it gives me a chance to get a little something off my chest. Um, and whether you agree or you disagree, absolutely jump in. Join the Facebook group for Blackthorn, Bro Blackthorn Grove Podcast. And... Really give us, let us know what you think. Uh, you can email me at blackthorngrovepodcast at gmail.com. I want to talk about these two seemingly genteel little words. For me. When you're talking about 
magic, when you're talking about witchcraft, when you're talking about anything that has a, such a personal connection to where you are and your, your personal history, these two words come up pretty frequently recently. The words for me. I was joking with a dear friend and fellow author, uh, Laura Tempest Sethcroft. She's a fabulous person. She should actually absolutely take out, check out her books. But these two words pop up, especially when you're teaching. Because someone wants to be involved in the process, they want to talk about where they are, where they're coming from, their thought process. But these two words can mean something very similar. What I want you to think about is the way that we speak about our own magical practices. Because it's a personal practice. You hear those words a lot of times because someone needs to feel like they're being heard. But they also want to make sure that you can't tell them that they're wrong because this is their practice. It's their opinion. So there's a lot, it's gotten quite frequent that you'll hear the words for me because the person not only wants you to understand that this is their own personal thing, but they want to make sure that they're not being told they're wrong. And the reason this happens is because we've gotten so used to explaining what witchcraft is, what Wicca is, what paganism is, whatever, whatever magical branch that you practice, we've gotten so used to having to couch our beliefs in the explainer mode that we over-explain to people who theoretically probably know what we're talking about. That's the problem with having a minority religion is the people who will always feel defensive about their practice because it is a minority religion. They've had bad experiences. They've had family cause issues. They've had fights with loved ones. It gets to the point where we spend more time defending our practice than we do practicing it. When you look at the, the, Halloween articles that come out every year, you know, starting October 1st, all the news outlets start talking about witchcraft and magic and 98% of it is talking about what it is rather than interviewing the person in front of them. There's, it's all background in trying to figure out how we look at that background. We then lose the whole point of the story is the person that's in front of you, the connection with that person. Oh, Susie started practicing magic when she found a book, blah, 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 blah. But if we can connect with the actual people rather than fighting with each other over how we define this word or how you pronounce that word, we can make a genuine connection with someone else, someone across the table or somewhere across the world. When we can get to the point where we're no longer fighting for someone to recognize who we are, we can get to the point where they can learn who we are. Just think about it. The next time you hear the words, for me, what they're really saying, are they saying they want you to see them, acknowledge them, 
see where they've been and where they're going? Or is it really just a semantic argument? So. Next thing I want to talk about. Uh, I was chatting with a friend the other day, as I do. And something came up that I really wanted to share with you. We were talking about the way that we practice and the number of traditions that are out there and the number of experiences that we have. And there was a concern from a special friend of mine about witchcraft. And when I say they, they were concerned, it wasn't so much as, you know, everyone gets those, oh, you must worship the devil. It was really a concern for gatekeeping. This is actually a problem that's become a little bit more prevalent in our society, in our community, because of that thing that we just talked about. The explaining who we are, where we are, what things are, and the way that we connect with each other. This practice, this issue, is buzzword witchcraft. It gets to the point where you've scrolled through Instagram, or you've scrolled through your Facebook feed, gone on Twitter, and there are people who feel that their only practice that they're seeing is the buzzword witchcraft. It's the witchcraft aesthetic rather than a witchcraft practice. But the gatekeeping that happens is what tears us apart. Uh, it's that real Scotsman defense. Of, you know, you're not a real witch unless. Okay, there are so many different ways, means, traditions, practices. There really isn't a way to determine who is and who isn't really a witch. Just because someone likes to arrange their altar so that it looks nice and take pictures and put them on Instagram doesn't make them less than. Getting your supplies from this store versus that store doesn't make your practice any less genuine. If you're able to find something really meaningful and beautiful to you in an online store, if you're going on Etsy, that's great. You're supporting local witches. And by local, I mean they're part of your community, even if they're halfway across the world. I've seen shops start popping up in the malls. I was in King of Prussia in Pennsylvania recently, and there was a really lovely shop, uh, East Meets West, and it had stones and it had witchcraft supplies from companies that we knew the names of. Um, Coventry Candle Creations is really lovely. They, they make the witch's brew line that I use pretty much as much <laughs> as much as I humanly <laughs> possible. Um, their original candle is a gorgeous blend that I use for my ancestor altar for my uh, for someone who I know that has died. Gets lit frequently. It makes the house smell wonderful. I, I love everything that they do. So I was really tickled to find them in a store that was right there in the mall. 
but I could hear uh, two young women on the other side of the small kiosk that I was looking at. Well, you can't buy things here. It's not a real store. And it's funny because we're in the mall. They're taking cash in exchange for goods. So it looked like a store to me. But because the store was run by people who didn't look like the young women in, in question, apparently that made it okay to, call, to classify it as not real. The gatekeeping that happens has got to, it's got to go. We feel like because there's been so much public perception and public pop culture attention, it gives people the feeling that they need to defend witchcraft. They need to defend magic. They need to defend witches. And I can see where it comes from. I can see that it comes from a place most, most of the time of love, of, a, you know, of a caretaking their own people, their own community. But by caretaking in that way, you're actually turning people away. You're actually telling people that they're not good enough, that they're not rich enough or what have you to be a part of X community. And that driving people away is what is going to kill any hope we have of joining a mainstream idea. We want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to have access. When the Sephora Witch Kit thing happened, when these other stores have had their own controversies, we have to be very careful to understand where the line is. The most prevalent argument was that it was appropriative of indigenous culture and the parts of the indigenous culture that were providing the, the sage for this ridiculous witch kit um, were saying we're, we're growing the sage, this is part of our our faith is part of our religion. This is part of our practice. And it's okay. We're met very hard by witches who are saying, well, it's not really our thing. So it actually devolved into an argument about shopping. The idea of having access is actually really important. And what didn't occur to a lot of people was that this may be the only option that some people have is going to the mall and finding what tools they can there. They don't have a witchcraft shop. They don't have transportation. Uh, they could rely on public transit to get wherever they're going. They could rely on their parents or their roommate or their girlfriend to get them where they're going. And for whatever reason, this is what's available. Going into mall shops and finding things that otherwise they wouldn't have access to. A tarot deck that's made with public domain images and uh, is very inexpensive. Finding materials in that way could be a little difficult. 
But the, the most recent cry, the most vocal cry was those people who say, well, you can't get things there. You have to X, you have to Y. And the problem with that is, is not everyone has the same experience as you do. Not everyone has the money, the time, or the access to the same things that everyone else does. And that's okay. Those are not the things that make the witch. The tools aren't it. It is not about the stuff. The stuff is great. I love this stuff. Um, I will absolutely tell you. My, my Leo moon will absolutely be happy with the stuff. But it's not the magic. I will, I will say it. I will have it tattooed on my forehead. The stuff is not the magic. The candles are beautiful. They smell incredible. They, they give a great ambiance. Um, they make your altar look beautiful. They give you light when you're working in a dark space. But the tools and the things are not the magic. So we've got, you know, whether you, you're trying really hard to keep everything within the community, I, I thousand percent appreciate that. I'm, you know, as a small businesswoman and as a, a longtime practitioner, but by fencing ourselves in and closing the gate and guarding it with a sword, what are you, who are you really keeping safe? It's very difficult to imagine the, the scandals that we've dealt with in our community in the last, I'll even say 10 years. By gatekeeping witchcraft to keep whoever else out, we're not really doing ourselves any favors because the people that we think are bad, pedophiles, uh, abusers, people will still be able to get in. We're not protecting anyone by resorting to this gatekeeping. Absolutely name abusers. Absolutely I, I let people know when they are in danger. But gatekeeping is not keeping anyone safe from danger. We've got we've to take a little step back and figure out where we're going and how we're going to get there together. There's plenty of room on this boat. We're going, I don't know, but if we don't make some room for some other else, this practice is going to die. And I really don't want that. I want to be able to share the spark that I feel. I want to share that creeping warmth that tickles the hairs on your arms when you know magic is in the air. I want to share the look between the person next to me and myself when you've both had a really incredible ritual and it's only there in that time without a time in that place without a place and there really isn't any words to express it but you're able to share that with another human I want to share that with people and I guess that's just a little part of why I write, but by making that connection with another person, by allowing them to see you and you see them, by allowing yourself the possibility of vulnerability, therein lies the magic. I mean, that, that opening yourself and allowing yourself to be vulnerable, 
is a very particular kind of magic. And it doesn't matter your tradition. It doesn't matter your what your who your, your deities are. That connection with another person is magical. Oh, <laughs> I guess I worked up. Um, I know the ums. <laughs> uh, I have a, cute, a few things that I really wanted to talk about. Someone asked recently, I was out and about at a, it was a seed exchange in New York, Pennsylvania. It was really fabulous. I went, we were, everyone was sharing their seeds. Uh, I'm, I'm a crazy tomato lady. I want to grow all of the tomatoes. I will eat them all. If you have them, I will eat them. <laughs> um, all the nightshades are my favorite. So we're at the seed exchange and we're meeting new people and people are starting to leave. And the hostess of this gorgeous gathering, her name's Erin, asked me, can I give you a hug? And she is now my favorite person. Um, I talk about this in my in-person classes frequently. It's funny the surprise that you see in people's faces because ritual is over and it just has become a culture or a habit where the ritual's over and everybody hugs and you know shares their experience with someone and they they disperse but hugging is still consent derived just because I'm standing next to my best friend Susie and we hug does not mean that you owe anyone else a hug. There, it's not, there's no O here. That hugging is part of touch and consent. There is no magical transitive pagan chain of hugs. Just because I hug Susie and, and Larry and Mark does not mean that because you're next to them, you're owed a hug. It is perfectly acceptable for you to say, no, thank you. You are the governor of your own person. Uh, bodily autonomy is absolutely yours. And I will, I will absolutely fight tooth and nail for your right to say no, thank you. Or just no. No is a complete sentence. That is probably the most powerful thing I've ever heard in my lifetime was no is a complete sentence. We very commonly feel it necessary to say, oh, we, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting off a cold, or I just, there's no reason why you owe a complete stranger an explanation. You don't have to be nasty. No, you have to be polite. You're not there for anyone's edification. But it's okay to not want physical contact with someone you don't know. Someone gives you a hard time, I will write you a note. I will notarize it. I have a notary. I will put a stamp on it. <laughs> but know that your no is just as important as my no and the person next to you's no. You, their right to not have their feelings hurt does not trump your right to say no. Thank you. I absolutely loved that part is very important to me. Uh, consent is my favorite thing. I wanted to talk about the very first book that I wrote, Blackthorn's Botanical Magic. 
in discussing this book, in writing it and doing interviews for it, I had some really great interview questions that I'll be sharing with guests when they come and visit the Grove. But I figured it was only fair if I sort of interviewed myself the first time. So, what do you do that makes you feel the most magical? I would have to say probably burning incense is the most magical I feel in in my day-to-day work. Ritual is completely different, completely separate. That's that's its own thing. But during my day-to-day events, during my day-to-day life, burning incense makes me feel powerful and sensual and alive. And those are all things that we deserve to feel on a daily basis. Making sure that I have time to connect with myself, with my space. Uh, my home is laid out very interestingly. Um, the whole first floor is all very large rooms. So incorporating scent across that space is very interesting. I want to make sure that the the scents complement each other and that the rooms are talking to each other very nicely. I'll burn incense while I'm doing the dishes, while I'm cleaning the kitchen. That's part of my daily routine is making sure the kitchen is nice and whole um it's the the hearth the hearth is the heart of the home right so doing the dishes filling the dishwasher i want to have that that sense of ceremony in scent form i talked about working with essential oils and it's funny because it's really the the soul of the plant that you're working with it's those volatile oils capture a part of the plant that just the leaves or just the roots or just the flowers can't really do. They can't encompass all of what that energy is. But essential oils give us a way to really speak to the the soul of that plant. So in mm, quite a few years ago, I can't remember the year, I had a death in the family. It was a, an, a great aunt that I had never met that was part of the family, but was far enough removed that she I didn't have any emotional attachment to this, this person. The funeral was family obligation. I had to go to another state, to my mother's hometown, and find the local church where her family had all attended, this Catholic church in a major city. I'd never, I'd walked past it a million times as a child, but I'd never been inside. So I'm sitting in a pew and the rest of my family has arrived. My extended family, my immediate family had not yet arrived. I was really nervous. I, my, the rest of my family had recently found out that I was a witch and I have a uh, very Baptist uh, extended family. They had my uncle converted to the church of his wife. They had all found out that I was a witch. It had caused a problem at a different family member's funeral a year or two previous. I was really nervous. I didn't want to be there, but I wanted to honor the family and the family member who had died. I wanted to be there for my mother. 
wasn't there yet. You know, I had that this real tight feeling in my chest and my shoulders. My foot was tapping. I just wanted to get this over with. My mom hadn't yet arrived. I'm waiting breathlessly for her to arrive and figure out what's going on. What can I do next? How can I get out of this space? And the funniest thing happened. The event started. Mother's still not there. Sisters aren't there. I'm sitting by myself on the edge of a pew, waiting to bolt out the back door. When the rear doors open, and a young man with a sensor comes through, behind him there's the actual casket, and there's priests, and everyone's got their little formation coming up the aisle past the pews. I'm anxious, I'm nervous, I don't want to do this, I want to be here. It's a long drive home. And the funniest thing happened. I went from anxious and nervous and fidgety. All of a sudden there was a brain flip. A little switch that said, oh hey. And it was the funniest thing. Because it took me a few seconds to figure out what was happening. What was happening was my brain got ahead of my body. My brain got ahead of my anxiety without me doing anything consciously. And I didn't figure out for a few seconds what it was. The young man with the sensor was burning frankincense and myrrh walked right right past me, right all the way up to the front, up to the pulpit. And the minute my brain encountered that frankincense and myrrh, my brain switched gears from anxious wreck to steady witch. That witch, part of my brain was engaged. I had grounded. I centered. I was on point and ready to go. And in no way did I stop and say, oh, this is a lovely church. I, I should ground and center. I should make myself ready for it. Nope. None of that happened. The procession walked past me and I was ready. And I realized why. My very first high priestess uh, was a recovering Catholic. Decided to fumigate the ritual room before every single ritual with frankincense and myrrh. You couldn't, you can't see the other side of the room from five feet away. It's that thick. When I came out to my parents, I just told them, hey, mom, I'm a witch. Talk to my stepdad, hey, I'm a witch. I came out at 15, probably. I wait till my mom's cooking dinners. She can't, you know, she's busy. She can't really engage with me too much. Say, hey, mom, I'm a witch. <laughs> and she, my mother has the best side eye. She gives me the mom's side eye and says, oh, that's, that's nice. Um, did you tell your dad? Oh, not yet. So I run outside and I find my stepfather out in the garden. And I say, dad, guess what? I'm a witch. And he says, oh, that's nice. I dated a witch in high school. How was your day? All of the, the teenage rebellion, gone. I'm very deflated. Oh, everything's fine. You know, hoping for some chance to explain myself. But no. I was able to go right out the minute I turned 18 and join the first coven I could find. Never do that. 
I will tell you that right now. Uh, when it comes to finding a group, whether it's an open circle, whether you're you're looking to join a, a, a group, whether you want to form a magical working group, doesn't matter what you what you're working with. Date around. Find people. Don't just check out one group and decide, oh, this is this is the one because of the first one you found. That's not how you do this. Try different groups, try different traditions, try different everything. Because joining a coven, um, finding other people to practice with, is it's an important step. It's not just the people you're going to be hanging out with. But a healthy group comes with a healthy group mind. Really make sure that you've taken the time to figure that out. You know, those, finding the right people. So, long story short, the thing that makes me feel the most magical, the most connected, is scent. You know, I, I immediately figured out, oh, that frankincense and myrrh was related to these ritual practices. Okay, now I understand. Let's go. What makes me feel the least magical? Oh, probably, I would say, I would actually say cleaning anything that's not the kitchen, you know, getting scrubby with things. It doesn't, there's there's not a lot of magical feeling in that. Um, You can, I can incorporate magical feeling, but it's not natural to me. It's just work. There's, there's usually some music playing, try and keep me motivated, but it's not inherently magical for me. The magical cleaning is usually the, the devotional cleaning, washing the statues and cleaning, scrubbing the altar and getting rid of the candle wax. The devotional cleaning is what makes me feel magical. Everyone asks how you found your way to magic. So I, I did that part. What uh, I want to know why is what nearly drove you away? This is super hard. Anybody who's, who's listened to the episode that we actually aired on YouTube for the premiere, I, I want to ask this of people because I want them to be able to talk about things that help build community. But this is a super tricky question. It's very, very personal. So I could do no less than answer it myself. Magic as a a practice is very personal. You can set up your altar or not. You You can have a place to practice or not. You may live with people who don't necessarily embrace your choice of religions. But the least magical, the least great thing is sometimes the people. You see a lot of people talking online about negative experiences they've had with covens, but it's not all of them. That means it wasn't the right one. And finding the wrong one can very quickly drive you away from something that feels beautiful and 
special and private. That connection with those people that you're building is a very delicate thing. Every time a new person comes into the group, that's the potential to cause instability in it. And it's that connection to our group mind that keeps us a healthy functioning group. What does that entail? It means the group actually has to meet. We got to get together. We got to see each other, even outside ritual. Build those bonds with the people that are around you. If they don't get to see you, they don't get to see your face, they don't get to know you, then it that group mind starts to fade. You've got to feed it. You've got to keep going. Because that connection with other people is not just the magic of divinity and magic of the divine, but it's part of recognizing in yourself the things that you want for the long-term goals. My very first coven, by the time I wound up leaving it, it had grown to probably 25 people. It was so large we actually had to hive and split it into two groups because it was it was much larger than uh, the high priestess could handle at that point and, and the space could handle. Um, but you've got to really consider how that we, each person interacts with another and how that affects the, the health of the group as a whole. If one person starts to falter and starts to not only doubt themselves, but doubt their connection, any of those things can start poisoning that, that group mind, that egregor. Not just getting together on a regular basis, but making sure that people have those, those connections and those relationships. I mean, if you're just seeing some people once a month and then you go home and you have no other connection with them, it can't be easy to keep tethered to that. And when you divide it by three or four, you only see them, we'll say quarterly, or you see them once or twice a year, those connections get thinner and thinner. So what can drive people away is the lack of that connection. Uh, I definitely will not name any names, uh, but if you, if you have a history with someone, you've got to figure it out. Then you've got to be able to move forward together as a part of that group. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It can be incredibly strengthening and renewing. My favorite fictional witch. That has probably got to be the white witch from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. She was... Uh, she was definitely a, <laughs> a character. Um, I actually wound up naming a tea after her, um, for her spicy personality and her, her dressing all in white. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm so, I'm such a, a silly person when it comes to pop culture, which is, I love all of them. I want all of them always. Each one has their own certain thing that makes them either a great witch or a terrible person. <laughs> you know, we, we get so few 
truly authentic, uh, which is in pop culture, because it would be boring, honestly. We, we talk so much about, oh, I, w- I wish there was some... We really don't, because it would be boring. There would be no conflict. There would be nothing to really do with the story. Uh, whether it's Nancy from The Craft being all zany pants, or it's Glinda the Good Witch, each one has a really neat thing that they bring to our, our pop culture um, and our understanding of witchcraft. Um, whether you, you love it or you hate it, pop culture influences magic. And it does in a really significant way. Um, in, the, in the late 90s, I was working at a, a shop in Baltimore, uh, spending a lot of time there. And it got to the point where I could, I could tell you within the hours of the craft airing on television because teenage, young teenagers would come in and they'd, look, they'd want books on Manon and invoking the spirit and the language that they had wasn't usually in line with reality um, because there is no reality in movies. That's the whole point is to distract ourselves, to get outside ourselves. But within hours of that movie being on, airing on television again, we'd get a new flood of people saying, hey, what is this? Where can I find books about it? Do you have classes on it? We'd have an uptick in people attending our open rituals. And it was really neat because we could get engaging with new people. The sour pusses may have said, oh, well, it's not real magic, so they're... No. It, it brings people in, whether they stay or they don't, whether they, they embrace it or they decide to move on to something else is beside the point. It engages people. It allows them to step outside the world of fantasy and find out where we are and if we have anything to add to their, their life, their practice, their world. The last thing I want to say is very, very soon I'll have information on the pre-orders for my next book. Uh, I will tell you that it's a potions book. Uh, the, the title and the author, you, you, I'm sure you can guess, but the connection is going to be through the realm of potions. So I'll have a book cover and I'll have pre-order information for you soon. You can check out amyblackthorn.com for more information about me and check out the Blackthorn Grove podcast page. You can also check out blackthornhoodooblends.com for information on tea. There's lots of, there's samplers available. You can try a, a little bit of 12 different teas. You can try and find one that makes your heart sing. Uh, but all in all, all I want you to remember is we are all trees in the same forest nurture each other. Thanks. Goodbye.